Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, you go first. Me go first? You go first. Oh, you're so polite. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, and which is, of course, the topic that we are talking about today, because we're talking about how opening doors, holding the elevator, all those little things, those please and thank yous, the niceties that can make all the other little indignities of life seem not so much of a big deal. Oh, the elevator. I'm so glad to not use an elevator anymore every day to get to the office. In our new building, yeah, right. I just take the stairs. It saves me that 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 feeling you get when you rush ahead onto the elevator and then you realize there's someone else coming. Uh-huh. But if you don't look at them, then you're not obligated to keep the door open. Yeah, there's a whole we've talked about this before. Oh, yeah, we we did actually did elevator. Yeah, elevator, elevator etiquette and how a lot of that, like your politeness is probably tied to the algorithm of that mm-hmm. elevator because <laughs> if you know that that elevator is only going to come every 240 seconds, you're not probably going to hold the open door button for that person. Yeah, the algorithm for the stairs is pretty simple and that's if I slip and fall probably nobody will find me in there because no one uses those stairs. And that's, that's you know, that's the interesting thing about politeness, too, is that, um, yeah, I hope that you don't slip and fall, by the way. Okay, that would you. be terrible. Um, that's the interesting thing about politeness is that it seems like at face value, it's pretty straightforward. But as we will get into, there is a kind of algorithm in place that dictates our levels of politeness and when we engage in it. Yeah, we're constantly tuning our politeness level to meet every face, every situation. It's ultimately, I keep thinking of this this massive spider web, and it's holding us all in our place, our place in society, our place uh, in our interpersonal relationships, and uh, just... And, and, and we depend on that webbing just to hold it all together. That sounds kind of dastardly, the web of politeness. Yeah, because there's a big spider there somewhere, right? Indeed, ready to gobble us up. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we came across in our research is that politeness, as well-intentioned as it can be, can sometimes be misconstrued. Mm-hmm. And uh, a good example of this is holding doors open for men. Oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, there's a research paper entitled, When Door Holding Harms, Gender and the Consequences of Non-Normative Help, by Megan <laughs> McCarty and Janice Kelly. And I think that title kind of says it all. Non-normative help. Yeah. Non-normative help. Um, so what we're talking about here, 196 unsuspecting men and women stepping through two portals into a Purdue University building. But first, they were approached by a male member of the research team as they walked toward the building for half the research associate, quote, took a step in front of the participant, opened the door, and let the participant walk through the front door first. Very chivalrous, right? Mm-hmm. For the other half, he reached for the adjacent door so that the two opened their doors more or less simultaneously. Would you think that there would be weirdness from this? Yeah, I think there would, I would think there would be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, initially I wouldn't mm-hmm. have thought so, but, uh, once those people got on the other side of that door, there was a female research associate and she approached each subject and asked him or her to complete a short survey. And on a one to ten scale, they indicated, uh, their agreement with three statements measuring self-esteem, including, quote, I feel that I'm a person of worth. Um, at least on an equal plane with others, <laughs> and three measuring self-efficacy, including I can usually achieve what I want if I work hard for it. And the results is that male 
and only males, uh, reported lower levels of self-esteem and self-confidence if the door had been held open for them. Oh, so it, it comes down to like the basic power to enter a space and, and your, uh, your, your self-worth in entering it. If someone is opening the door for you, then your masculine reptilian brain can't handle it. Or your gender-performing ah, self can't handle yeah. it. Um, and that's the gender-performing part is interesting because there's a guy named Irving Goffman, a Canadian-American sociologist, and he viewed society through what is called symbolic interaction perspective. So this is kind of like everyday behavior in the interactions between people to help explain why society is the way that it is. And Goffman applied something called dramaturgical analysis in order to, in order to study this kind of social interaction. Um, so he looked at this as really theater performance. In his 1959 book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, he looked at self as an image deriving from the perceptions and responses of others that create the face of the person, and two, as the actor, as a player in a game or a set of rituals. So for self-preservation's sake, the self, especially the actor representing yourself, mm-hmm. right, uh, would be interested in cooperation, signs and symbols, and well-understood practices in society, like... Hey, you don't hope open the door for me. I'm a strong man. I don't need another man to do that, right? So in other words, for most of us, we inhabit these actor selves on stage responding to an audience, whoever that audience is. And we try to guide the impression and form the identity through the gaze of others. And our backstage selves are hidden away. And this is where a lot of this idea of politeness and how we perform it comes into play. I like the use of signs, uh, symbols, and ritual in this because it makes it sound like every interaction we have, every little polite uh, interaction, is, is ultimately just a ritualistic activity um, dealing with a, an abstract self, which, uh, which kind of right? holds true, yeah. I mean, because everything has some sort of context to it that we all understand the game rules to, right? Right, yeah. Like if you were just given this object and you had never seen it before, you wouldn't know what to do with it or how to interact with it. You would need someone to tell you, like, this is uh, this sphere and you can open up one of the compartments. I'm holding an actual, like, sphere-like thing. Um, And it's empty and you Mm -hmm. can put paper clips in it. (laughs) <laughs> Otherwise, you'd be if you'd never seen it before, you'd be like, "What is this alien thing?" Yeah, I mean, every every little interaction, particularly the uh, the holding the door scenario that we've been discussing here, it's it's kind of its own little micro reality. It's own, its own little game with a set of rules and expectations. And no matter what else is going on in the office building or the environment or the country or the the personal lives that are going on, you have to enter that micro reality at least for a few seconds and deal with it. Full disclosure here. Mm-hmm. Um, over the past couple of years, myself and a couple of the other house staff works, uh, female staff workers here have been holding doors open for men mm-hmm. and, and then just seeing if they have a certain kind of body language afterward. And yeah. uh, just for the record, the only person who has not allowed us to open the door <laughs> for him and not knowing what was going on mm-hmm. at all was Scott Benjamin of Carstow. Oh. It was the nicest, <laughs> most polite person in the world. He knows the rules of the game, and he's not going to allow you to break them. Nope. nope. All right. So uh, Goffman's theory that was uh, 
1959, early 60s, that comes out. Uh, the next uh, step in this uh, study of politeness comes from 1978 with politeness theory uh, from husband and wife researchers Stephen C. Levinson and Penelope Brown. The basic concept here is that people have a social self-image and they consciously project it, okay? The self-image is called face, as in, you know, to say face. Uh, and it has a dual nature, positive face and negative face. Positive face seeks approval, while negative face wants to be left alone, doesn't want to be imposed upon. Now, what face do you have? What face are you dealing with? I mean, it all it all depends, especially when you're dealing with a face-threatening act or an FTA, where the, the face that you're you're wearing is essentially challenged. And, of course, there are two shades of this as well. Positive FTAs are a direct challenge to face or self-image. You can think of this in terms of an insult, uh, a socially inappropriate comment, uh, something of that nature. Meanwhile, negative FTAs are far more confrontational. Uh, somebody has to budge. Somebody has to act. An, an imposition is being made. The example that, that keeps coming to my mind on this one, on the, uh, on the negative FTA, is Dr. Seuss's uh, story, The Zacks. From uh, it was it's a very short little story in uh, the book uh, the Sneeches, mm-hmm. and you have a north going uh, Zach and a south going Zach, and they meet together in I believe the desert of Pax, and neither one is going to budge. Like the one is saying, "You have to get out of my way because I'm going north, and that's the way I roll." And then the south going uh, Zach says, "No, I'm I'm going south, and you're in my way, and you've got to get out of the way because that's how I roll." And they neither one budges. And uh, civilization builds up around them, and roads are built <laughs> over them in the highway of packs. But, um, but yeah, so that's that's simply because they're not engaging in the act of cooperation, right? And that's ultimately what it what what is happening in uh, in uh, in a negative FTA is somebody has to budge. And I was thinking about the term FTA, this this facial threatening act. That sounds so dramatic. But have you ever been in a situation where you've been with another person or a group of people, mm-hmm. and? Everything's pretty light, and then one person's face falls and ha- and drops out of that sort of cooperative thing. And it's really a very unsettling thing to see that because it's yeah. so clear that that person is upset or feels threatened or is threatening another person. Yeah, like the classic example would be you, you accidentally make some sort of faux pas. You make a, you make an off-color joke, and uh, unknowingly it, uh, it affects somebody on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Politeness theory essentially is driving home the idea that politeness serves to both reflect and regulate our social distance. Now, politeness theory identifies four politeness strategies that a speaker uses. And the first is what is called a bald-on strategy. And it's a direct approach that you would use with someone that you know really well, so like a family member or Mm -hmm. a loved one. So, for example, uh, you're at home visiting your parents. You might say, I want pizza for dinner, right? Very direct. Uh, the second strategy, because, by the way, you don't have to worry about their faces falling so much, right? Yeah. They, no, I they would, still love you. I would appreciate you. a please on, uh, from the child on the pizza. Sure. But, you know. Right, right. Um, but again, you don't have to worry, worry about the FTA factor too much. Right. The second strategy, the positive politeness strategy, shows you recognize that your audience or the person you're talking to, has a desire to be respected. It also confirms that the relationship is friendly and expresses group reciprocity. So perhaps the request would be something like, is it okay if we have pizza for dinner tonight? You know, it's just a little bit softer of a lob there. Yeah. 
The negative politeness strategy, the third strategy, also recognizes audiences' faces,、uh, but it also recognizes that you are in some way imposing upon them. Okay, so again, we're seeing degrees of relationships removed here. So maybe、mm-hmm. this is someone I wouldn't normally have dinner with,、mm-hmm. and I don't know what their preferences are. So you could say something like,、um, you know, I don't want to impose upon you or anything, but I was thinking that pizza would be great. <laughs> okay, so semantically, you're throwing in some more stuff there to create that distance, and then the final strategy is called the off-record indirect strategy, and this is super. I love this because it takes a lot of the pressure off of you because、um, you're really trying to avoid this direct face-threatening act of asking for pizza or whatever it is,、mm-hmm. right?、Um, so what you do is you say something along the lines of.、Um, Hey, it's 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 National Pizza Day. I heard that restaurants are giving ten percent of their profits to UNICEF, and you're trying to make that person anticipate what you're saying and make the decision for you. Yeah, almost make them decide to do the thing you want them to do. Almost Jedi mind trick them, right? Yeah, 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 all all in an attempt to avoid the dreaded FTA, right? And <laughs> in, in an attempt to secure cooperation. Now, I made the analogy of of a web earlier about everyone being suspended in this web, and、uh, I keep coming back to that in part because distance is such a, a key、uh, aspect of all of this. And when I talk about distance, I'm talking about not only spatial distance, as as definitely space plays into any polite interaction. How far am I away、uh, from that individual? But also psychological distance,、uh, semantic distance.、Um, Temporal distance,、mm-hmm. uh, as we'll get into, especially when you think of in terms of、uh, sending a letter or an email to somebody. When is it going to be received? D- when in time are you addressing someone? So, politeness theory suggests that three aspects of interpersonal situations are universally related to politeness. Number one, the relative power of the addressee over the speaker. Number two, the degree of imposition of the to be performed act, and number three, the social distance between the speaker and the addressee.、Uh, as such, according to the, to the theory, speakers use more polite language when addressing individuals with a high higher status、um, than individuals with equal or lower status. Uh, they uh, they use more polite language when asking for a bigger favor versus a smaller one, and when addressing strangers versus familiar people. None of that should come as a surprise, right? Right. You. you, you You're you're dealing with a, a police officer that just pulled you over. You're gonna generally you're gonna roll out all the polite polite niceties, right? Far more than you would、um, with just、uh, you know a, a teller at a local store, right? So, a 2010 paper from Tel Aviv University Department of Psychology investigated how politeness affects and is affected by the level of、uh, construal temporal distance of construal distance, temporal distance, and spatial distance, and they predicted. That greater politeness would be associated with higher levels of greater temporal and spatial distance. So, in in examining this, they conducted no fewer than eight separate studies, and most of these were written evaluations, test quizzes,、uh, pretty un.、Uh, Exciting stuff,、mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but、uh, at the end of it, they had some some pretty key findings that、uh, that shed some light on just how politeness works、uh, within a cultural construct.、Uh, they said people were more polite when they addressed a person they、uh, construed in terms of abstract goals and dispositions rather than concrete means and situations. So this would be、uh, an example. Of this would be、um, uh, you know a general meeting with a boss as、yeah. opposed to a 
we've got to hit this deadline. Where are you standing on this project meeting with the boss? Okay. Okay. They were more polite when they expected the target to receive the message in the relatively distant future, uh, when they referred to relatively distant future actions, and when they addressed individuals in relatively distant locations. And they found that a request to generate polite statements prompted participants to use abstract verbs. So the example here would be, can you help me with some lecture materials? Is coded as more abstract than, can you show me some lecture materials? Ah, okay, so show is more of a demand. Yeah, it's, you know, the difference between, hey, can you help me with this? And, hey, can you do half of this for me? You know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, they found that the polite utterances were judged as pertaining to the relatively distant future and were judged as directed to addressees in relatively remote locations, which um, which is interesting. You know, we can all think of examples where we may have addressed someone and said, hey, if you have time to get to this, there's no rush on this, but uh, if you have a minute, can you maybe unload the dishwasher? And you're already sort of pushing that event, that unloading of the dishwasher, into a more distant future. You're you're, you're establishing more temporal distance between you and the person you're addressing, uh, even if the dishwasher really needs to be unloaded in the immediate future. Yeah, and you are employing that negative politeness strategy too, right? The right. opposing part. The uh, Tel Aviv study um, also said that... Um, uh, when instructed to use polite language in addressing another person, participants preferred a relatively large spatial distance from that person. So they're, they're actually preferred to stand a little, a little farther away from the individual or perhaps, uh, you know, be uh, isolated from them across a larger desk. So politeness and distance seem to go hand in hand. It's, uh, it, it's almost the equivalent. I keep thinking of, you know, we can't help but make caveman analogies with any of these sort of uh, basic uh, underpinnings of, of human behavior uh, studies, but I think of like of, of somebody encountering like an enraged ape, and you don't want to make eye contact with them. You don't mm-hmm. want to establish that closeness with them because there's danger. So you would do more to distance yourself from the danger and employ more politeness. And that's where the FTA comes from, right? right. That, that's where the drama of that comes from. So that's on the request side of things, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of shows how tentative or sometimes how we kind of loathe to even ask for help, right? right. And how we do it. So if you are on the flip side and someone's asked you something, um, how effective are sweet little nothings like thank you, right? Um, Adam Grant and Francesca Gino ran four experiments looking at how the thank you sentiment played out with helpers. And the research, by the way, is published in the June 2010 issue of the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. In the first study, they had 69 participants who were asked to provide feedback to a fictitious student named Eric. Now, the participants didn't know this was a fictitious student. They just got some feedback or they just got an email from him. And so he asked for a little bit of feedback on his cover letter for a job application. Now, after sending their feedback through by email, they got a reply from Eric asking for more help with another cover letter. Half of them received this follow up with a thank you incorporated into it. And half of them received a follow up from Eric that was neutral with no thank you in it. So the results were that 32% helped Eric in comparison to 66% when those people received a thank you. Hmm. So already you can see that 32 to 66, that, that was, that's a pretty big 
impetus for trying to help someone, again, if you receive that little small token of gratitude. And this has a kind of pay-it-forward aspect to it, because the next day, these same participants received another um, request, this time from a fictitious person named Stephen, who asked if uh, they could help him. And the percentage who offered to help Stephen was 25% when they had received no gratitude from Eric. But this shot up to 55% when they had been thanked by Eric. Huh. So the politeness of Eric spilled over into their willingness to help Stephen. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. So it affected that. And that's that sort of pay it forward aspect to it. Now, the third and fourth studies yielded similar results, but they used face to face scenarios and all had the, the same idea that the simple act of gratitude was helping to ratchet up the feelings of self-worth in the respondents, in the participants. Hmm. So it's not just a, a you know nicety of saying, hey, thank you so much. It's actually kind of feeding into the ego a bit. Yeah. It's interesting, too, how then each interaction is kind of helping to maintain the social order of the politeness uh, algorithm. Yeah, because it's basically saying, I'm imposing upon you my apologies. Can you help me? Because we we live in this cooperative society, and that's how we've survived as a species. How about it? And the other person says, sure, here you go. And the other person says, thank you for doing that. I know you didn't need to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss uh, what's the most polite country in the world, what's the least polite country in the world, and can you be too polite? All right, we're back. What is the most polite country in the world? Now, I, I'm sure everyone has their own sort of individual take on this based on their own individual interactions with other cultures. Uh, in other countries, but uh, generally speaking, uh, when people talk about polite cultures and phenomenal politeness, they talk about Japanese politeness. They are famous for it. Yes, and uh, and indeed, when we say phenomenal, it is studied as a phenomenon um, uh, by researchers. Uh, l- linguistic politeness uh, in, J- in Japanese culture uh, has especially been a, a, an item of study by Stanford's uh, Yoshiko Matsumoto, professor of Japanese language and linguistics. In her work in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, uh, Matsumoto argued that the themes of Anglo-Saxon individualism in politeness theory doesn't even really work with Japanese culture. That the and that the very concept of face, particularly that of negative face, is is ultimately just kind of alien uh, to the Japanese. Uh, she said, "Quote: What is of paramount concern to a Japanese is not his or her own territory, but the position in relation to others in the group and his/her acceptance of others. Loss of face is associated with the perception of others that one has not comprehended and acknowledged the structure and hierarchy of the group." Hmm. So an example of this uh, that we see in in just the linguistics uh, of the whole scenario. Uh, In English, when we meet somebody, what do we say? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, which, of course, is is such such an empty statement. It's nice. Like, what is nice? What is nice? And even, like, it's a pleasure to meet you. Is it a pleasure? (laughs) Like, chocolate is a pleasure? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's such an empty statement. But you're... You have to say it. You have to say something or some version of it because it's just part of the contract, part mm-hmm. of the back and forth. It's the rules of the game. Okay. 
Uh, and, but it's certainly a phrase with a lot of distance in it, right? It's just merely nice to meet you, to make your acquaintance. Uh, lots of spatial distance, lots of uh, symbolic distance. Lots of, hey, let's start this on a positive foot. Yes. Yeah. We are, this is very clinical, really. However, uh, in Japan, a typical form of greeting is the following, and I apologize to our, our, our Japanese-speaking listeners. I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to hit this uh, correctly. Dozu yor oshiko ogamash, which means I ask you to please treat me well, take care of me, <laughs> which to, uh, to foreign ears, uh, it might sound a little personal. It sounds very vulnerable <laughs> and very honest, right? Yeah. It's like, hey, take care of me. Suckle me, you know, feed me, clothe me. I don't think the suckle me is. Okay. But it does have an aspect to it that's like, hey, I'm meeting you. I'm I'm vulnerable and um, treat me well. Yeah. I mean, that's that's much more. That resonates a lot more than nice to meet you. Yeah. Right. Now, if you were going to go strictly by politeness theory, however, this would be a bit of a, a negative face imposition. Right. It lacks the distance of that that English language politeness. Uh, but. In this, we see the, the, but in this, it really uh, zeroes in on the focus on interdependence in Japanese culture, uh, uh, and that interdependence even has a, a special name in Japanese culture, um, Amaru, and it uh, it's all about placing yourself in another's care as a sign of respect. Um, also, it, the, respecting your elders and realizing that you're you're ultimately under their protection, under their guidance, and therefore it's a it's a sign of respect, and you're. You're uh, recognizing the existing social hierarchy by saying, please take care of me. Okay, so instead of denying the threat as, hey, nice to meet you, everything's good here, right? Mm -hmm. There is no threat. It's more an acknowledgement of a possible threat. Yeah. Right. Hey, take care of me. I know that you could not do me a solid here. Right. But please do. Yeah, and if you fail to recognize this hierarchy... uh, and, and, the, and the, the, the ranking here and the interconnectedness, then you're creating an impression of ignorance or lack of self-control. And then you lose face for real. Huh, okay. Yeah. Now, in terms of the least polite country, this one is a lot harder to get <laughs> to. A lot of people, uh, when it's represented in the media at least, frame it as sort of a tourist goes to this country and they find these people to be rude. Mm-hmm. Well, that's erroneous in terms of logic anyway, because it's, uh, you know, that sort of experience is freighted with cult- cultural expectations and violations of norms, right? Yeah. So my norm in the United States is going to be different than someone else's norm in France, for instance. Right. So the best way to get at this is again to go more toward that direct, indirect nature of language. And this is really plumbed by Eva Ogerman's excellent article. Politeness and indirectness across cultures, a comparison of English, German, Polish, and Russian requests. Again, indirect, direct, and requests that we're dealing with here. And she writes that English and German, for example, tend to contain the more distancing and polite indirect request, whereas Russian and Polish is more direct. She writes, quote, what Brown and Levinson's theory does not account for is that some cultures appreciate pragmatic clarity while associating directness with honesty. Indirect requests, on the other hand, not only increase, quote, the interpretive demands on the hearer, uh, 
In other words, you have to really listen carefully if I'm saying, hey, it's National Pizza Day to try to figure out what it is that I'm hinting at. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says, but can also, quote, make the speaker sound devious and manipulative. Ah, and it, coming back to the Jedi mind trick thing. Why are you trying to trick me into thinking pizza is a great idea when really you just want me to you just want pizza. Right. So she's saying in this example, um, you know, the Russian hearer isn't necessarily discounting that direct approach because that feels more honest. And she also says the Russian hearer does not necessarily regard a request as an imposition on her or his personal freedom. And a potential refusal involves less face loss for a Russian speaker than it does for somebody with an Anglo-Saxon cultural background. In other words, if you make a request and the person says no, then it's not as heart-wrenching as it would be in uh, in an Anglo-Saxon exchange. Hmm. It's interesting, too. Uh, you know, when you think of Russian culture, you, you, one of the sort of stereotypes that, that comes to mind is very close personal interaction during greetings, right? Mm-hmm. Kisses on the face even, uh, you know, one, one man kissing another on the face or, a, or uh, you know, Vladimir Putin kissing a small boy. And it's it's all perfectly acceptable. Well, you're right. So you see that correlation with there's a directness with language and there's a mm-hmm. directness with personal space. So the nonverbal and verbal match up. Yeah. Meanwhile, in uh, in Japanese culture, you, you definitely see more of a, uh, a, a spatial distance in interactions as a whole. And yet both of them, you would think of them as being completely different, but both of them are trading on the concept of honesty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and ultimately, like no matter what particular culture you're looking at and their various levels of politeness, their various uh, semantic systems of politeness. I mean, it's all coming down to maintaining that webbing, maintaining that system of interactions that keeps everyone sane and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and functional. Right. So in this respect, there's a worth to being agreeable, mm-hmm. right, to putting yourself out there, to being polite. But the question then comes up, could you be too agreeable? Could you be too almost obedient? Ah, yes. Uh, and in this, we get into Stanley Milgram's obedience study, which I'm I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with already, at least, uh, you know, surface level. And of course, this is where we end up discussing the Holocaust while examining politeness. This uh, this uh, study from Milgram came up in the 1960s. Particularly, the experiments began in July 1961, just three months after the start of the trial of, of German Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem. So the idea here, of course, is were millions of indiv- individuals just following orders uh, when it came to the Holocaust, or were they actual accomplices? Could, could you essentially just be so polite and fall in line and in doing so, you know, lead straight to the gates of hell. Uh, so that's what he decided to examine in a series of experiments. And it's, it's worth noting that there were 19 of these in all. This wasn't just one single experiment, but they were all kind of shades of the same, uh, the, the same, uh, uh, but they were all sort of shades of the same format, okay? Uh, so basically, uh, particularly with the most well-known uh, example of the experiment, which I think was experiment uh, five, you had 40 men recruited using newspaper ads, paid $4.50 each. They were brought in uh, and divided into groups. So you had teachers who were asked to pull a lever and administer a shock every time a learner answered a question incorrectly. Learners were heard but not seen. And... Uh, they were part of the experiment. There wasn't really somebody being shocked in the next room. They were just pretending to be right. shocked. You know, 
All the while, the learners are complaining about the shocks, which increased by 15 volts for each wrong answer. Uh, at the 300-volt level, the learners bang on the wall for a release, and beyond this, there's only silence. And at this point, the experimenter, the authority figure in this scenario, instructs the participant to treat this silence as an incorrect response and deliver a further shock to the learner. Okay? So okay. it's a pretty kind of diabolical scenario. Going into this, it was predicted that no more than three out of 100 participants would actually deliver that maximum shock to a silent learner. Only but three? Only three. Okay. That was the, that was one of the predictions going in. Okay. In reality, 65% of the participants in Milgram's best-known study, again, Experiment 5, delivered the maximum shock. 35% then were refusing to administer that highest shock level to this individual who's presumably unconscious mm-hmm. or even dead following these previous shocks. Now, the obedience rates were different depending on the experiment. Again, there were there were 19 of them, and they varied with the scenario a bit in each one. Obedience rates dropped to 47.5% in a rundown apartment building environment uh, versus uh, a Yale campus environment for, uh, for experiment number five. Okay. And then there was yet another experiment in which the learners only had to take notes about uh, the shock. They didn't have to actually administer it. And in that, uh, obedience rates hit 92.5%. So they were just bureaucratically a part of the the shock, and therefore they were more obedient. Uh, so the more distance, mm-hmm. the the more they could sort of objectify that person. Yeah, exactly. And then carry that out. So how this plays into politeness theory and uh, politeness across cultures, Milgram was essentially an evolutionary psychologist. And the central idea here is that there is a survival advantage to submitting to authority. He recognized that humans evolved a psychological mechanism for obedience, which he called the agentic state. And in this state, normal moral inhibitions are bypassed and we become a mere agent of an authority. So the idea here is that there is a, there's an evolutionary advantage to politeness. There's an evolutionary advantage to staying in line with the social norms and obeying the authority figures that are sending you orders, suggestions, what have you. Okay. Now, to explore this, uh, there was an extension of the Milgram study by researchers at the University of Grenoble Alps in France, published in the 2014 edition of the Journal of Personality. And they wanted to see which personality types were more or less likely to obey orders that resulted in pain to others. Mm-hmm. And so participants were 35 males, 31 females, aged 26 to 54, from the general population, and they were contacted by phone eight months after their participation in a study transposing Milgram's obedience paradigm. And these interviews were presented as opinion polls with no stated ties to the earlier experiment. And the personality was assessed by the Big Five Mini Markers Questionnaire, which was also used in the Milgram studies. And uh, this includes categories of personality like conscientiousness and agreeableness. Now, political orientation and social activism were also measured and uh, results confirmed hypotheses that the conscientiousness and agreeableness would be associated with willingness to administer high-intensity electric shocks to a victim. Um, the subjects, what we're seeing here, again, had a more agreeable and conscientious personality, this sort of disposition, and they were more likely to follow the orders given to them um, even if it meant delivering these painful shocks, 
so that they didn't go against authorities. So just sort of underscores all of what you were talking about with the Milgram studies. Uh, now, this is interesting. People with more left-wing political leanings were less likely to deliver the painful shocks. And a particular group of study participants were described as holding steady and refusing to harm others. And this group was women who had previously participated in rebellious political activism. Huh. And I think all of this kind of, all this circles back to why, why do atrocities happen? Does it, it's politeness really factor that much into obedience? Can it be so extreme that, um, that it ties back to the survival instinct of authorities and obedience? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's gonna, it's gonna vary depending on a partic- the particular cultural, uh, situation as well as the, the political climate. Right. But it's all really fascinating when yeah. you, when you look at politeness in this way. It's not just the, the please and thank yous that we try to instill in children, you know, for good reason, because yeah. they will get more help. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but there, there's a lot more going under the cover here of the semantics of it. Yeah, indeed. I mean, we're, we are talking about something that kind of, to, a, to an extent, holds us all together or at least allows us to, to work within a given culture. And I think that's why you see, too, in computer-mediated communication, mm-hmm. talking about email, oh, yeah. talking about Facebook, Twitter, so on and so forth, you see less of a regard for the feelings of others because you don't have that sort of, you know, face-to-face interaction. You don't have to see the the, the look of spoilage yeah. <laughs> across someone's face when you've said something terrible. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, the uh, the, the modern uh, world of email and online reviews and uh, Facebook comments, it really does skew everything a bit, especially when you start thinking again about those factors of, of distance in space, uh, distance in time. Um and, and how that factors into you thinking about the other person on the other end of a given email or review. Yeah, and again, it's, it's occupying the headspace of the other person. Yeah. And it kind of ties back to empathy as well. And I was thinking, um, even when when you're thinking about the cadence of um, two people talking, mm-hmm. there are specific rules in place there, rules that even whales observe. Oh, Yes. Yes, uh, this is pretty interesting. Of course, whales are known uh, uh, for some of their their whale songs, right? They're communicating uh, with each other across vast distances. Uh, and what happens when those calls overlap, right? Those conversations overlap. Well, as it turns out, uh, the whales are actually uh, doing what they can to remain polite and courteous of those other conversations. Yeah, Natalia Sidorovskia of the University of Louisiana at Lafayette and her colleagues discovered that whales change the intervals between their echolocating clicks in a way that seems to prevent cluttering the echoes from these other calls. And she says, quote, in other words, whales are polite listeners. They do not interrupt each other, <laughs> which would be really important because there's there's uh, information that's trying to be uh, disseminated here. And if you don't get the information, well, hey, that might affect your survival. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the sort of the, the Jenga tower of communication and uh, certainly the human Jenga tower of, of uh, intercommunication is far more complicated. Uh, but uh, but the, the simplified whale model uh, illustrates that that anytime there is uh, there there's 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 a social system in place, 
you have to have at least some level of politeness to make it work. Right, or else you're going to be shunned. Yeah. And that's the, 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 really the crux of all of this, whether it's from an authority figure or from the group. Um, which of course led us to wonder if there are any whale jerks out there that have been ejected from the group because they keep talking over the other members. Yeah, because, um, I, yeah, we were talking earlier uh, about this. Like, to what extent is whale society such that a rude whale just simply dies out and, and therefore nature selects for polite whales? Whereas in human culture, you, um, you know, unmistakably you have individuals who, uh, don't really work well in polite society, but perhaps they have a skill that still makes them very valuable, you know? Like that, uh, you know, the, the guy at the prime, primordial campfire, and eh, no, maybe not primordial. Yeah, like, like some guy at a prehistoric campfire who maybe he's not great about joining in with the, the, the post-meal conversation, but he's the best at grounding down, uh, you know, weasel bones into a necessary <laughs> paste. So you gotta keep yeah. him around. And that's why we developed willful inattention, as yes. we discussed in that episode. About willfully ignoring someone. Indeed. All right, so there you have it. Politeness. Uh, you know, hopefully you have a, a more nuanced understanding and appreciation for all those little niceties that fill our life and fill our interactions now. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all of the episodes, videos, blog posts, links out to social media accounts, you name it. And if you have some cordial, genteel thoughts that you would like to share with us, we would love to hear them. You can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 